I'll admit that I do like to try to find things that maybe are a little challenging or things you've not thought of before. I don't in any way think that I've got it all figured out or that, you know, I've got some new way of looking at things. But, but sometimes maybe there's a way of, of giving a title or a topic that you may have never even heard before. And this is possibly one, or at least the phrase that's used here. Uh, I only left the bottom of the outline blank. If you have a copy of the, the bulletin with you and you follow along, I only left it blank kind of for the sake of room, but, but uh, just maybe also to not give too much away. Maybe it'd kind of pique your interest to think about what this phrase is that's used here. If you opened up to the 22nd Psalm, uh, look at the beginning of it, and you may or may not have something different there. I was trying to look in between uh, services again on my computer in, in my office there, uh, but there are uh, different versions, of course, that translate differently. Some of them will point out if there is some instructions or title at the beginning of a psalm, and some won't. Some of the psalms, if you pull up Psalm 22, verse 1, and you pull up every version, your, you know, the most common versions, some of them simply begin with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of them begin, though, as others do, with a title or a description. The New King James, in particular, calls it a psalm, or excuse me, the suffering praise and posterity of the Messiah. Then the New King James says, To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn a psalm of David. Now, some of you may have a version that has this particular phrase in it. And if you know me, you know that I'm probably going to say it eight different ways by the time that we're done, right? If I keep trying to pronounce this particular phrase. Uh, but the best I can tell is a yelleth shahar is this phrase here that would mean if you have a new King James or you have an NIV in particular, the morning heart or the deer of the dawn. Now, if you don't know what the word heart means, it's a reference to a male deer, an adult male deer, especially a red deer who is over five years old, is, a, is what the word heart would commonly refer to. Now, the NIV would say to the tune of the doe of the morning. And the New King James says, set to, kind of like the music, set to the deer of the dawn. Now, as we think about the Bible, there are all kinds of, of animals that are used, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. Um, and, you know, a song that Brian led just a moment ago, Common Love, is right before the song in our songbook, As the Deer Panteth for the Water. I almost asked him to lead that, but that's not really in connection with this. That's not, it doesn't have anything to do with this particular psalm. And as we mentioned this morning with uh, John chapter 14, we, we covered verses 8 and 9, and we say we don't usually read those. If I said Psalm 20 to you, what would you say? Well, you'd say 23, right? We'd say the 23rd Psalm. But Psalm 22 is an interesting one. If you remember a few months ago, I preached the lesson that I presented at the Fried Hardeman Lectures back in February. And we talked in that lesson about how the 22nd Psalm, you know, most scholars and most people believe is a reference to the Messiah. Including that Jesus says, as it begins here, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I challenge you in that lesson, and if you have time and you do your own Bible study, look through the 22nd Psalm again because you will see other references in this Psalm that deal with the Messiah. And so if this word, if these words across the top there, the title of the lesson this afternoon, this Ayeleth Shahar, if that is referring to the morning deer or the morning heart, and by the way, many scholars think that, and if Jesus is the one that's discussed here, as almost all scholars agree, that this is a, a prophecy about Jesus, 
then we might could say that Jesus is God's deer. Now understand, that's not to be kind of, you know, somebody say, well, that, that doesn't sound nice or right or, you know, kind of brings Jesus down. That's not the idea at all. Simply taking the words of this and, and thinking about it that way, we're going to talk about animals a little bit this afternoon. Now, again, not, not to uh, be any kind of particular way or make it seem like it's just, you know, silly or frivolous in any way, but we're going to look at several scriptures that talk not only about animals, but also about Jesus in reference to animals. And there's a chance here that this is, that's what this is referring to. Now, as I mentioned in the New King James, if you have one of those or an NIV, it talks about set to or to the tune of. So this may be a reference for the chief musician to know what kind of way to sing this song. That's a, there's a chance of that. There's also a chance, again, it's pointing towards this idea of Jesus being uh, the deer of the dawn or God's deer. Let's notice a few things together as we go through the lesson. First of all, let's notice that animals played a role in the life of Jesus. I hope that you have a Bible handy because we're going to kind of go through several passages to point out some of these things. But animals played a role in the life of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 27, you may recall that there Peter or Jesus sent Peter to catch a fish and that fish had a coin in its mouth and that was going to be used to pay the tax man uh, to give that money. Matthew chapter 17 uh, in about verse 27, there's a little more around that particular section there, verses 24 through 27, but Jesus tells him that. Uh, talks to him and tells him about the fish and to take that coin that is in that fish's mouth and to use that then to pay the taxes with that. So that's one just from the life of Jesus. Again, that's not going back to as the deer pants for the water or other references from the Old Testament. We will touch on a few of those. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 8 and verse number 32 that Jesus exercised some demons and he sent those demons into a herd of swine which then ran down a steep incline and they were drowned in the sea. Matthew chapter 8 is one reference of that beginning um, in about verse 32 there. Uh, and so in this, this particular section, excuse me, I was in the wrong one here. Matthew 8 verse 28 through 34 uh, is where he takes these uh, demons and send them in the swine. The New King James says in verse 32 that the swine ran violently down the steep place and into the sea and perished in the water. Uh, you know, several of us were talking yesterday. I, we were at a birthday party and uh, several of us were talking about technology and social media. We were talking about teenagers and that kind of thing. Talking about Facebook and, and Instagram and, and even the idea of TikTok. And some of you know what that is and people, teenagers using that. What we're looking at are essentially in social media is viral moments. Right, things that grab people's attention. And I would think this would have been one, right? If you were standing nearby and all of a sudden you saw a herd of swine run into the sea, basically off a cliff into the water and drown, it would catch your attention. And that certainly happens here with Jesus and the association with swine. You know Matthew 21, we call it the triumphal entry uh, as Jesus is going to take his, some even call it the victory parade, right? But, but he's not going to be a victor in the sense he's going to die, but we know he will eventually be victorious. But the victory parade, this triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, beginning in Matthew chapter 21, he came into Jerusalem riding upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so a lot of people remember that. Some people even sort of act that out, if you will, around the time of, uh, of you know, 
thinking about Jesus' death upon the cross, but that was one more. Let's go through a few more here. What about the lamb? Luke 22 in verses 7 and 8. As Jesus is going to institute the Lord's Supper in Luke's account in Luke chapter 22, as he is making this triumphal entry or as he has done that, in verse number 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. What's he talking about? Is he talking about the celebration? Go prepare the celebration so that we can eat? No, he's talking about the lamb, the preparing of the lamb in honoring that Passover feast. And so these things, of course, are full of symbolism, but this is another occasion of Jesus with uh, animals playing a role in the life of Jesus. And of course, one of the most famous accounts, even though we don't always think about the animal, maybe of the fact that there are this many animals that Jesus uh, kind of had an interaction with or discussed. Matthew 26 and verse 34, he predicted that Peter would deny him three times before a rooster crowed. And that awful, awful scene. I've put on the screen there Matthew 26, 34. I think it's Luke's that usually strikes home a little deeper for many of us. Uh, when we think about Peter denying Jesus, uh, verse, uh, Luke 22, verse 61 is where when Peter makes that third denial that Jesus, Luke records that Jesus turned and looked at him. And if any of us have ever been caught with the hand in the cookie jar, proverbably right, uh, as, as then Peter is caught actually saying the words and Jesus looking at him, that feeling in the pit of your stomach to know you've done exactly what he said you would do, even though you said you wouldn't. And, uh, of course, then that rooster crows, and Peter has that disgusting, awful feeling that hopefully we all feel when we fall short, when we sin and miss the mark. Uh, sometimes we grow numb to that, and that's unfortunate because it causes us then to feel maybe a little more likely to sin as we become numb. Uh, but we hopefully will always think about Peter and that uh, rooster and that feeling of, yes, I know what I have done has been pointed out to me, and what I need to do is get right, you know, to do, uh, do right, to be in a right, right relationship with God. So that's kind of a, a short version there. We could probably pick out several others, but animals played a part in the life of Jesus. He used them as examples. He also made mention of them and some of the things they were doing, and this is just a few that we put together on the screen. Let's talk about how Jesus is sometimes compared to animals, even more than him saying, hey, go kill the lamb. Let's talk about a few occasions in which he is compared to animals. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 15, Paul would write, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation or the firstborn of every creature. Now, this is something common that happens in our lives and both not only in our personal lives, but in literature, right? We use an animal to describe someone. You might say that someone acts this way or looks this way, and we use a description of an animal. Well, to help us better understand Jesus and his personality, animals were sometimes used or he's compared to them. He is the firstborn of every creature, Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 15. What about in the Old Testament? I told you we would take a few references. Uh, we won't dive into this too deep because as you see there, I had to put the whole chapter, Luke chapter 16 on there, or Leviticus chapter 16, excuse me. But if you remember Leviticus chapter 16, there's this 
figure, this type and any type, if you will. And I, that's almost what I preached on this afternoon. I'm thinking that in the future we may take a, a Sunday afternoon look at types and anti-types in the Bible. It's a great study. One of those, and, and Jesus is a type of the scapegoat, right? He's a type of the way that they would take this uh, scapegoat and then car- the scapegoat would carry the people's sins into the wilderness. This is a really good challenge for you if you like to, to read and do a little more studying and you, maybe you have some personal Bible study, some personal Bible time. Go read Leviticus chapter 16. Think about the reference to Jesus being this scapegoat and how he was going to, of course, bear our sins, not just into the wilderness in a sense, but of course they can be washed away. But uh, Leviticus chapter 16 helps us understand the role of Jesus and what he does as a type of scapegoat. What about Numbers chapter 21 verses 8 and 9? Do you remember there the brazen serpent that is the people are afflicted by the fiery serpents? Numbers chapter 21 and verse number 6, the Lord sends fiery serpents among the people. They bite the people and many of the people of Israel died. Moses is given the instructions to make this bronze serpent and to raise it up and put it on a pole so that anyone that saw it would then live. I don't know if you have one of those Bibles that has notations in the middle, right? The kind of the reference Bibles, but mine does. And if you do in this particular section, you'll probably see John chapter 3, right? What, once again, we kind of get John 3 sort of cornhole, you know, pigeonhole there into one little spot. And what's that? John three sixteen. We talked about it this morning. It's, you know, the central place there, the wonderful verse that so many people know not to take away from it. That yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's wonderful that, that this verse is there. But do you remember what takes place in context around it? Do you remember that John chapter 3 is the story of Nicodemus? There's an important passage there that talks about the new birth. The idea of being born again. One must be born again. And then not only that, but right before that, right before John three sixteen. Jesus makes a reference to the brazen serpent from Numbers chapter 21. And so we see this figure of Jesus being lifted up. And if the people would look upon the brazen serpent in Numbers 21, they're healed. And if we will look on to Jesus for healing, we can receive the same thing. You understand it's more than just looking, right? It's more than just looking upon Jesus. There's more that the New Testament tells us we must do. But you see the parallel there that we can look to Jesus just as the people look to the brazen serpent and we can be healed. All right, what about John chapter 1, verses 29 and 36? When it comes to his meekness and his sacrifice, he is called the Lamb of God. John, in John chapter 1 and verse 29, excuse me, John the baptizer, John 1 and verse 29, sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Is that just kind of something he thought up that would be neat? You know, I'll call Jesus the Lamb of God. No, we see this picture that he's going to be meek. He is going to be the sacrifice. And so calling him the Lamb of God is the exact opposite of what people said. Oh, he's going to come in on the horse and he's going to be the victor with the sword and he's going to take down all of these people. That's not it. He's the Lamb of God. And that helps us to understand a little bit about him. What about Revelation? Chapter 5 and verse number 5, when it comes to his strength and his authority, he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Once again, a different picture. Not so much that he's the victor and he's the one that's going to lead the people and, and conquer, but he is in a sense. He has authority. He is, as we say, the king of the jungle, right, with the lion. He is the king. He does have authority. He does have strength. And he is going to be the, li the lion of the tribe of Judah. I didn't have a slide for this, but if you turn in your Bible to Revelation 5, 5, notice in Revelation 6, 2, that there's also a mention of him riding on a white horse, that he is a conqueror of sorts, not in the same way that people think of it, but yes, he is a conqueror of sorts, and he is seen as coming, he's coming riding on a white horse. So all of those things help us understand the full picture of who Jesus was, and by was, we mean here upon the earth and his role, but also who he is and the way that he will reign. So when we have talked about all of this, we've talked about these different roles of animals. Let's come back then and, and think a little bit about Jesus as the figure of a deer. And I, I borrowed a lot of this material, by the way, uh, from Alan Webster. Um, we always try to emphasize in our library that we have lots and lots of the tracks from house to house, heart to heart. And if you ever think we're short, you just go see Faith and she'll show you where her secret stash is in the office in there. Uh, they send more than we can put out. But it's, it's wonderful. And a lot of them are very um, eye grabbing, you know, kind of headlines sometimes. I had the, somebody call the building here. I guess that was in 2020. It probably would have had to have been, maybe even before that, uh, because there was one that said, if Jesus were running for president, would he win? Or something along those lines. And around the time of an, the election, someone remembered that from a house-to-house heart-to-heart issue and called and said, I wish you'd run that again. And so they're very sometimes attention-grabbing, though, you know, uh, titles that will make you think a little bit and so you can grab some of those and read them for yourself you can certainly hand them out because a lot of them have questions that people maybe have asked about worship or about the church of christ or about different things but also also their website has almost everything that's on in a tract form is on their website and so i was kind of looking through there the other day at some notes and this is something that, that came out and grabbed my attention and and alan webster in this kind of short article says you know no way I, is i think that this is something that that's exactly what maybe god is trying to say but it is kind of interesting as you draw this parallel between a deer and the way that we even have deer and hunt deer, and you think about maybe this reference to Jesus as a deer, there's some pretty intriguing thoughts here. Let's go through a few, and then the lesson will be yours. Uh, picture Jesus' life in terms of a deer, not just from the viewing. You know, somebody says it sees a deer, and they say they're sleek, and they're very beautiful, and this, this animal that they like to look at. But let's go a little further and think about some of the actions of the life of Jesus. We're going to be in the gospel accounts, of course. So if you want to follow along and look at these passages, uh, then let's, uh, you can be turning to the book of Matthew for sure, but we'll go to Luke and John as well. Think about Jesus as a deer. He was startled by the huntsman at the dawn of the day. And what we might say is that in Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 16, Herod began hunting Jesus while he was just a small fawn, if you will, just a small deer. At the dawn of the day, from the very beginning in Matthew chapter 2, you remember Herod and his wise men and those who were out hunting for these boys, and in particular for this one that they're talking about, the Messiah, the one about these things were these, the person of whom these things were written about. And of course, in verse 16, that Herod makes the statement that they would put 
to death all the male children who are in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So Herod began to hunt Jesus at the dawn of the day or from a very small age. What about Luke chapter 4? He is not, he's not free and clear. You know, some deer may get away from the hunter. Maybe you've been hunting before and you've seen one and they get away, that deer gets away, but it's not the end, right? They're still, especially in this part of the world, this part of the country is they're always kind of being hunted. Um, that's not the, the last time. And in Luke chapter 4, Satan is the next one to attack Jesus, this deer, if you will, in the wilderness of temptation. It's recorded also in Matthew chapter 4, but in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is attacked. Uh, this is more than Herod. Herod, of course, makes this broad statement and people are looking for the Messiah, looking for Jesus. But this is what you can read about in Luke chapter 4 there, the, the conversation, right? Satan saying these things to Jesus, Jesus giving the defense straight from the word of God. It has been written uh, and has this kind of going back and forth with him. It has been said. And of course, eventually Satan is going to leave him in verse number 13 of Luke's account there. But he is attacked a second time. What about again in Luke chapter 4, this time verses 28 through 30 or thereabouts, that in his, after his first sermon in his hometown, there are more hunters who gather about him ready for the kill. But if you can recall this passage or if you turn there and you've looked at it, this is one of those interesting ones. You kind of have to study it. Do you remember that in verse number 29, excuse me, verse number 30, it says Jesus passed through the midst of them. And without having time to go too deep into it, it almost seems as if, I don't want to be misleading, but like a ghost of sorts. He kind of passes through this crowd that's looking to kill him already, that's wanting to do you know, evil things to him and hurt him. He kind of passes through them in this sense that he's able to escape. So it's not just Herod, it's not just Satan, but even these other enemies have their sights set on him. But just as if you've ever been hunting, or maybe you've seen a hunter, a video of something like that, someone who thinks they've got the deer lined up and the sights ready to take the shot only to see them escape. Here in this case, they gathered about him ready for the kill, but he is fleet of foot, if you will, and he's able to escape. All right, along the way, he is shot at, if you will, many other times. Um, shot at, I had to put in quotation marks. I think that's a southern phrase, Gabe. I don't know if that's something. I don't think people say that. The, the, uh, the computer didn't like that. They said shot at's not a thing, but I think it is around here, right? Somebody's being shot at. Well, an animal's being shot at. He was shot at many other times and other occasions. Luke chapter 13 and verse 31 uh, many hateful men joined in their pursuit, and there Herod takes another shot at him and wants to try to kill him. In John chapter 7 and verse number 20, the people tried to bring him down. And of course, in John chapter 5 and verse number 18, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Sought all the more to kill him when Jesus healed a crippled man on the Sabbath day. To me, and we talked about this last Sunday morning, I guess it was, with the three men who Jesus interacted with, and they said, oh, let me go and bury my father and let me do these other things. Remember that, uh, if you were able to be with us. Um, we talked about how he has so many interactions that we don't know about. I find it interesting that all of these occasions that are listed here, it doesn't seem as if he's fearing for his life, 
But I think I'd be pretty afraid if this is how I spent most of my days. You know, every time I round the corner, someone is seeking to kill me or put hands on me or something along those lines. It doesn't seem like it'd be very comfortable. Now, I fully understand that we're talking about the Son of God here. We're talking about Jesus, God on earth, who's a little different than me and you. Uh, and it's not like he had security and bodyguards all the time. But he was shot at many times. There were several instances, and that's even what we have. Probably other instances that we don't have, where people were seeking to hurt him or to harm him. And not just the leaders, but also other people that aren't even exactly named. And it doesn't matter what he does. Right? How many good things does he do? He heals a cripple man, and yet that's not enough. People are still upset about it. And so we know that this is kind of the lifestyle that he is living as almost like a deer on the run, if you will. In John chapter 7, in verse number 1, we also see that as hunters, sometimes back to our modern day parallel, hunters have noticed sometimes deer during deer season they might figure out how to avoid, right? Uh, some of you have heard us talk about Clayton. Clayton has gotten into hunting recently and really wanted to, and he says it doesn't matter where he goes, the deer know to go the other direction, right? It doesn't matter what he does, where he goes, he just hadn't had any luck yet. Well, I don't think that's exactly quite like this because they don't think, I don't think they have his picture up and they say, hey, hey, avoid this guy. But right, sometimes it seems as if deer will know, well, maybe I should avoid this particular area. Maybe their patterns change because they realize that something is going on here. And so, yes, God's deer, if you will, at time may have avoided areas where he knew the hunters were going to be. John chapter 7 and verse 1, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. He's not just looking it in the face every time. Now, he's not exactly afraid either. He's God. He, he knows he's omniscient and understands what's happening. But he also understands, well, you know what? We're going to leave this particular area and we're going to focus more here. Or as we know, he also is setting his face at a certain time to go to Jerusalem for what he knows is coming. And so like a deer, uh, maybe he knows the best area to avoid in order to avoid some of these hunters. And then, of course, the last one here before we make one final parallel, Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. He is caught in a night hunt, if you will. As the hunters encircled their prey at the end, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they gather at the high priest's palace to plan their strategy, and they finally catch him in a night hunt, if you will, in somebody else's garden. And they're going to put him to death. And that's sort of, you know, the conclusion of this here. And really, once again, for the parallel of a deer, you know, no deer arising from the dead. Nobody's making that suggestion. Uh, this is the end if it were going to be a true parallel. But when we think about the 22nd Psalm and we think about Jesus, the hunter's success was short-lived. God's deer leaped from the grave three days later to live forevermore. And so, yes, the parallel kind of changes a bit because, you know, again, from our earthly perspective, deer are not rising from the dead. But it is interesting to see all of that laid out. And there's not any super spiritual meaning among that. I do think it's kind of interesting to think that of all these parallels between animals, period, animals and Jesus, and then also this idea of his life being as a deer going through all these stages. And then certainly it kind of means something to us. We know that a lot of people around here like to hunt and hunt deer. But ultimately, when it comes to this, a yelleth shahir, 
God's deer, the deer of the dawn, he's not going to stay dead, but he's going to rise. He's going to live forevermore. And so, yes, this uh, parallel kind of changes there in that sense. But how wonderful it is to think about uh, God's deer that did not have to stay in the grave. But he rose. He rose so that we can rise again. (coughs) Excuse me. And we conclude there with this particular lesson, hoping that it's been a little interesting to you maybe to consider some of these passages and to think about these parallels. We are thankful uh, for Jesus' life and being able to understand him through these examples that we've looked at from Scripture. But we are ultimately thankful that he did not stay in that grave, but that that he rose from the grave to live forevermore so that we can partake with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And as we conclude our lesson, we're about to sing this song that's been selected. We encourage you to partake with him in that. If you have never done that, by putting on Christ in baptism, (coughs) coming in contact with his blood, and rising again to walk in newness of life. We're also thankful for God's second law of pardon. If you're here this afternoon, as many of you are, as a child of God already, but you've messed up, you have an opportunity now to make your life right so that you don't have to leave 